Making Space. With this week's double parasha, the long account of the construction of the sanctuary, one of the longest narratives in the Torah, taking no less than 13 chapters, that long account comes to a magnificent climax. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the sanctuary. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the sanctuary. That is what the building of the sanctuary was about, how to bring God, as it were, from heaven to earth, or at least from the top of the mountain to down in the valley, from the remote God of awe-inspiring power to the Shekhinah, the indwelling presence, God as Shachin, a neighbor, intimate, close, within the camp, in the midst of the people. Yet for all this, we wonder why the Torah has to go on at such length in its details of the Mishkan, taking up the whole of Truma Tetzaveh, half of Kitisa, and then again Vayakel and Pekude. After all, the Mishkan was at best a temporary dwelling for the Shekhinah, suited to the years of wandering and wilderness. But in Israel, it was superseded by the temple. For 2,000 years, in the absence of a temple, its place was taken by the Beit Knesset, by the synagogue. So why, if the Torah is timeless, does it devote such space to what is essentially a time-bound structure? The answer is deep and life-transforming. But to reach it, we have to note some salient facts. First, the language the Torah uses in Pekude is highly reminiscent of the language used in the narrative of the creation of the universe. So, for instance, we read Moses saw all the skilled work and behold, they had done it as God had commanded it, they had done it. Whereas in creation it says God saw all that he had made and behold, it was very good. We read all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was completed. And we read on creation via Chulu Varetz, the heavens and the earth and all their array were completed. It says, and God completed all the work that he had made. And of the tabernacle, it says, Moses completed all the work. And then it says, and God blessed the seventh day. And Moses blessed the people who built the sanctuary. And he sanctified it. And Moses sanctifies the Mishkan and all its vessels. So clearly there's a linguistic parallel between the end of Pekudeh and the beginning of Bereshit. The Torah clearly wants us to connect the birth of the universe with the building of the Mishkan, but how and why? The numerical structure of the two passages heightens the connection. We know that the key number of the creation narrative is seven. There are seven days. The word good appears seven times. The first verse, Bereshit bar Elohim, contains seven Hebrew words. The second verse, 14 words. The word Eretz, earth, appears 21 times. The word Elohim, God, 35 times and so on. It's all sevens and multiples of seven. So in Pekude, the phrase, as the Lord commanded Moses, appears seven times in the account of making the priestly garments, seven times in the description of Moses setting up the sanctuary, and so on. Note also one tiny detail, one tiny detail, apparently odd and superfluous. How does the book of Exodus begin? Not 
Eile Shomot Bnei Yisrael, these are the names, but Ve'ele, and these are the names. Why, why do you start a book with an and? The presence of that and is suggesting that the Torah is telling us to see these two books, Genesis and Exodus, as inherently connected. That one letter of the Vov, the and, is the superglue that blinds Genesis and Exodus. They are part of the same extended narrative. And the final relevant fact is that one of the Torah's most significant stylistic devices, I know I mention it often, is the chiasmus, the mirror image symmetry, A-B-C-C-B-A, as in, for instance, the verse, the key verse of the covenant with Noah, shofech dam ha'adam ba'adam dammo yishafech. He who sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. This form can be in the shape of a single sentence, as here, or a paragraph, but it can also exist at larger levels of narrative, of magnitude. What this means is that a narrative reaches a certain kind of closure when the end takes us back to the beginning, which is precisely what happens at the end of Exodus. It reminds us quite precisely of the beginning of all beginnings when God created heaven and earth. The difference is that this time human beings have done the creating. The Israelites made the sanctuary with their gifts, their labor, and their skills. To put it simply, Genesis begins with God creating the universe as a home for humankind. Exodus ends with human beings, the Israelites, creating the sanctuary as a home for God. But the parallel goes much deeper than this because it's telling us about the very different nature of the difference between Kodesh and Chol, sacred and secular, the holy and the mundane. We owe to the great mystic of Yitzchak Luria the concept of tzimtzum, self-effacement or self-limitation. Luria was perplexed by the question, if God exists, how can the universe exist? At every point in space and time, the infinite should crowd out the finite. The very existence of God should act the way a black hole does to everything in its vicinity. Nothing, not even light waves, can escape a black hole, so overwhelming is its gravitational pull. Likewise, nothing physical or material should be able to survive for even a moment in the presence of the pure, absolute being of God. So Luria's answer was that in order for the universe to exist, God had to hide himself, screen his presence, limit his being. That is what he called Simtsum. Now let us come back to the keywords Kodesh and Chol, holy and profane, sacred and secular. One of the root meanings of Chol and the related word Chalal means empty. Chol is empty space. Chol is the space vacated by God through the process of self-limitation so that a physical universe can exist. It is, as it were, emptied of the divine light. Kodesh is the result of a parallel process in the opposite direction. It is the space vacated by us so that God's presence can be felt in our midst. It's the result of our own tzimtzum. 
We engage in self-limitation every time we set aside our devices and desires in order to act on the basis of God's will, not our own. That is why the details of the sanctuary are described at such length, to show that every feature of its design was not humanly invented, but God-given. That is why the human equivalent of the word good in the Genesis creation account is as the Lord commanded Moses in the tabernacle account, sanctuary account. When we nullify our will to do God's will, we engage in that symptom, in that self-limitation, and we create something that is holy. To put it simply, Chol is the space God makes for us. Kodesh is the space we make for God. And both spaces are created the same way by an act of tzimtzum, self-effacement. So the making of the sanctuary that takes up the last third of the book of Exodus isn't just about a specific construction, the portable shrine that the Israelites took with them on their journey through the wilderness, it is about an absolutely fundamental feature of the religious life, namely the relationship between the sacred and the secular, Kodesh and Chol. Chol is the space God makes for us. Kodesh is the space we make for God. So for six days a week, the days that are Chol, God makes space for us to be creative. On the seventh day, the day that is Kodesh, Kadosh, we make space for God by acknowledging that we are his creations. And what applies in time also applies in space. There are secular places where we pursue our own purposes, and there are holy places where we open ourselves fully and without reserve to God's purposes. If this is so, we have before us an idea with life transforming implications. The highest achievement is not self-expression, but self-limitation, making space for something other and different from us. The happiest marriages are those in which each spouse makes space for the other to be himself or herself. Great parents make space for their children. Great leaders make space for their followers. Great teachers make space for their pupils. They're there when they're needed, but they don't crush or inhibit or try to dominate. They practice tzimtzum, self-limitation, so that others have the space to grow. That is how God created the universe, and it is how we allow others to fill our lives with their glory.